Welcome to ACP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ACP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your hosts. I'm an ASCP certified clinical laboratory scientist and executive editor for the publications department at ASCP. So today we're going to be talking about personnel management, and we've got some great guests lined up. I'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Oh, hi, everyone. I am Kelly Susky, and I am currently at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in the Department of Internal Medicine. But previous to March of this year, I was for 25 years a Department of Pathology academic administrator and clinical administrator, and I am very happy to be here with y'all today. Hi, everyone. I'm John Bacci. I'm the Executive Director of Anatomic Pathology at Boston Children's Hospital, and I also serve as the Chief Operating Officer of the Children's Hospital Pathology Foundation, which is our medical practice plan, and have been in anatomic pathology uh, 38 years. And I'm Martin Lawler. I'm the uh, Division Director for Finance and Administration for uh, University of Michigan Medical Center Pathology Department. Um, I've been in my role for 14 years. Prior to that, I worked at um, UCLA for 14 years and and worked in pathology and for the Chief Operating Officer there. Thanks for joining us, first off. And before we get really get going, I got a little bit of housekeeping to get out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA, PRA, Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. Again, thanks for joining us. So before we talk about personnel management, I'd like to touch on recruitment. And as I'm sure you're all aware, recruitment and retention has been an issue for the laboratory and for pathology professions for at least several years. And trends indicate that this is still going to be a challenge for the industry going forward. So what are your suggestions for attracting and retaining personnel for hard-to-recruit positions? We've had probably the most challenging year we've had in the last year in recruiting staff to come and work at our hospital. And a lot of it has to do with pay. A lot of it has to do with COVID, but it's been our most challenging year. We, we have workforce shortages that I'm sure everyone has the same issues. And um, we're working on hiring bonuses and retention packages for, for people. But um, especially the, the lower paid positions like specimen processing and phlebotomy, it's very difficult to, to, to get people hired right now. Yes, I think that, you know, for the technologist ranks, you know, having some kind of orientation, first and foremost, to orient them not only to your department, but to orient them to your culture. And I think that that helps with retention as far as also along the lines of retention, helping them connect to a society like ASCP, for example, and supporting them in their continuing education, I think is very, very important. And it has been as proved valuable and very helpful to retain staff if you if you give them those opportunities. As far as recruitment goes, I think 
you know, reaching out to your colleagues. And, um, and I know that later on, we may talk about networking, but that is essential. I think hearing from a colleague across the country that you you're, have a technologist that might be moving to your area or a spouse of a technologist that might be moving to your area and you can use your network to help you recruit, I think is very helpful. Yeah, along in agreeing with uh, both Marty and Kelly, I think creativity for faculty now is sort of the special sauce and trying to come up with what you think might lure someone in your direction to offset the particular challenges that might be in your geographic area, for example, a high cost of living or dealing with weather, you might offer different commuting packages and things like that. So I think there's a lot of pressure for faculty to become a little bit more creative than we ever have been in the past in terms of offer letters. For non-faculty, especially for technical positions, I don't think, and I don't mean this with disrespect to our human resources colleagues, but I don't think we can any further rely on human resources to do the recruitment for us. I think it has to be done homegrown ourselves. I think we need to make very much an effort to start developing, you know, and I, I can only speak to anatomic pathology. That's the only place I've ever worked, but we're working hard to develop non-certification programs where years ago we only hired certified histotechs or certified PAs, where now we're more apt to hire a histotech one position and train them on site and help them pass their exam, sort of developing our own farm team. We just got into doing that and we've already seen some success with that. We've also tried to partner up with as many of the local and local to us is the Northeast, but as many of the local uh, certified training programs as we can to offer our laboratory to be a clinical training base. You're getting a look at what might be your next hire or helping like somebody Kelly said, this person rotated in our department and they're wonderful. So you can pass them on in the event that Kelly or Marty needs a technician. I think we have to start doing this very, very early in our career. I agree with John. And there's um, there's a huge lift in doing what I'm about to suggest. But once an institution commits and does it, it makes a world of difference. And at a previous institution, we had about 10 to 12 new technologists every year through our training program because we had a medical technologist training program. And um, it was usually people that were like in positions that John was alluding to, you know, that were wanting to become medical technologists later on in life. And they would go through the program, sit for the exam, and it really gave us a great feeder to our medical technologist ranks. It's a big lift, as I mentioned, but it's so worth it in the end. And, and we don't have a medical technologist program at uh, my institution, but we do have students that rotate through every year, interns, and um, we end up hiring probably 80% of those that rotate through. And that, that's one of our real feeders for to, to get new employees. Yeah, that's, that's the way it was back, you know, mumble mumble 30 years ago, whenever I was going through tech school, it's, um, yeah, you know. But those were your first stops to drop your resume off, right? After graduation, it's like, well, I, I went through chemistry here. I went through micro here. I really like these people. Maybe I want to work there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like opening your doors to having hosting students, which I know it's whenever places are short staffed already, sometimes that's a big ask. But yeah, you got to you have to consider it if you're not already doing it or start doing it again if you've stopped for whatever reason. I'll also compliment what Kelly said. It is a big lift. It does pay back tremendously. We, we have for over a decade now had a high school internship where uh, we go out and teach pathology at local high schools. And then we hire, we literally filled a, a yellow school bus of high school kids to spend the day in our laboratory. And then of those 20 or 30 that came, five or six may develop a particular interest. And then we hired them as summer interns, which um, is wildly successful to have an eager senior in high school in your department for the summer that may work at a different rate than some of your paid employees. But those end up sometimes being your administrative people or the finance people or your lab techs of the future. And we have seen, gosh, at least seven or eight or nine full-time employees come from kids that were once high school students on that yellow school bus spending the Saturday in our laboratory. So it does take some time. It's very rewarding. It does give you a sense of gratitude a little beyond the paycheck when you see some of these folks actually entering your field because of something that happened back when they were in high school. So yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't be strong, be stronger in encouraging that. Well, it's also, it's, I mean, it's, it's a good reminder of why you got into the profession to begin with, right? Like whenever I was younger, I geeked out about biology and I geeked out about diagnostic stuff without even really realizing that, you know, doctors didn't do that. I mean, I pathologists are doctors, but you know, it's not like the clinicians that you see walking around the floor that's doing your lab work. It's, you know, lab people as pathologists. So even, I think even doing what you're talking about, John, is a really great way to broaden the knowledge that our profession even exists. Even if those people end up working, like you said, in finance or whatever, they, they know what labs do because they spent four afternoons in a lab. I think that's a great thing. I kind of want to shift a little bit to a little bit less from a recruitment angle, but the re retainment angle. As I mentioned, I, you know, I, I'm a clinical laboratory scientist. I worked in the labs for on the bench for 17 years. And one of the big pain points for me, and part of it is like the generation I'm in, I'm a generation X and none of the boomers were old enough to really retire yet. It, so a big pain point for me was upward mobility, right? You've got a limited number of managers, you've got a limited number of supervisors. And unless you're really willing to relocate, there's not a whole lot of room for advancement. So can you guys talk a little bit about that? Like what we can, we can do for, for the laboratory workforce in that regard? Oh, I can start. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of comments on this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, Kelly. So I mentioned career ladder because I, I think that that is so key and you need to um, treat every single employee as an individual and really focus on what they want to do with their life and what they see where their future would be. Because if you do it as a group, the people are just going to get lost. And it's just not going to be individualized, and it's not going to be as meaningful. And I think if you, if, you, if you talk to each person, if you were a supervisor of a lab or the assistant supervisor, and you find out you know, that they have a passion, like you were mentioning, Kelly, you said you had a passion with biology, for example, like if they have a passion for QA or they have a passion for policies and procedures or 
something like this, whatever their passion is or that they are interested in. If you say, would you like to be the lead person for our policy or the lead person for our CAP mock inspection or the lead person for interfacing with the physicians or working on the computer interfaces or whatever it is, there's so many different aspects that a supervisor and an assistant supervisor has to do that they could farm out that to those people that are up and coming, who want to be more, who want to do more. And they could showcase that by doing these little small projects, if you will. And and I just think that if you do it based on each individual um, likes and their desire and their, their capacity for how much they want to do, that you're going to you're going to get a lot of mileage out of that. Go ahead, Marty. I'll just follow up with it, just saying that creating a career path is really important for our employees, especially now. I, I don't have to tell you, you folks that we've had 30, 40, even 50 year employees at University of Michigan uh, Pathology Laboratories. Um, we're not seeing the same with with the newer medical technologists or clinical scientists that they seem to be more mobile and looking for other opportunities. And how do we entice them to stay is 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 the big one of the biggest questions we're working on. And and I wish I had a, a specific answer for that other than developing a career path and um, yeah, be, because. We had people that would come and stay that this was going to be where they were going to work their entire career. And I think our our new med techs look at things differently and they're more mobile. And uh, we need to find ways to retain them, specifically finding a, a career path and, and a graduated ladder that they can go through in our organization. I am, uh, again, I totally agree with my much older and much more esteemed colleagues. Not older. But <laughs> I also think it's our job to set, and I don't mean to put a negative twist on this. Instead, maybe I'll call it an actual twist or reality twist on this. I think it's our job to educate these young folks in what a career ladder really is and what it isn't. I don't think, I think we have to make sure that folks realize because you've done one budget one year or worked on a budget one year, it's actually to your disadvantage to then claim on a resume that you do budgeting. And, you know, there has to be some education of the next generation of you realize it's probably going to take you four or five cycles of budgeting through the good years and the bad years and, and through the positive years and the years when you're in, you're in a deficit to understand what managing a budget is. And many times we've had folks that have had that checkbox that I've done budgeting, I've worked on a project, I've worked on a research project, I therefore must be ready for the next level. And I think it's our job to educate them that that might not be the case. I think the issue is to encourage these very energetic young people that you want to move on successfully, not just because it's two years or not just because it's three years and have, like Kelly suggested, very personal discussions at what I think it takes at your level to be successful at the next level, not just get the director title or the supervisor title. 
because you want to do, you don't want to do this. You want to do this well. And doing it well probably takes a little bit more time than the initial folks understand. And I think that's our job too. So that, that's quite a balance that I think we all need to work on. Yeah, I think you brought up an interesting point that it's not necessarily about the title at all, right? It's, it's much better to not have the title, but to be really good at something that a director may do than to have a director title and just not be very good at it because right. you'd never learn those skills. And I, I try to mentor people and tell them that it doesn't matter what my title is. If there's a spill in the hallway, if there is trash to be picked up, I'm going to do it. And I expect other people to do the same. Just because your title, you know, or your job description doesn't say you shouldn't make copies or you shouldn't get coffee or you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. You should do whatever the job takes or it requires or whatever is needed. And, and you should make yourself invaluable. And I think that's the best advice I could ever give anybody is to make yourself invaluable that this place cannot run without you. And, um, and how you do that is by doing whatever it takes to get the job done. I couldn't agree more. So related to this, we are all aware that we kind of have a retirement cliff coming up. Um, so where the majority of laboratory workforce will begin to hang up their, their lab coats, so to speak, and retire. So when that happens, we'll need a new generation of leaders. And you all have talked about this a little bit already, but could you expand upon it a little bit and talk about what we need to do today to really develop tomorrow's leaders? I can jump in on this one first, if you'd like. I think one of the biggest challenges nowadays is trying to inspire people to be good mentors and how to delegate projects effectively and to not give people pieces and spoonfuls of projects, but to give them the entire pie to pass or fail and to manage the whole project from inception and go to all the meetings without you there and manage something from start to completion, and then you evaluate the finished product. It, so many times we, we in a, I don't think it, it's a personal decision to be selfish. It's so much easier to just do something yourself than train a new person to do it and then evaluate their performance. And they may not do it the way you do it. And at the same speed you do it, they may do it differently in a different way and come to a different end product, but that end product might also be acceptable. It might look totally different from your end product, but they may also do it. And I think developing mentoring skills for laboratory professionals at all levels to make sure that they're passing down individual projects to all the technicians in the laboratory and letting them feel a little bit of financial strain, a little bit of operational strain, what it's like to be part of a, a, a operational budget or a financial budget or putting a new building in or attending facility meetings, being proficient in all areas of the laboratory, including Zoom and learning how to uh, conduct a Zoom meeting and speak in front of a department. Those are all things that I think become siloed in busy laboratories that, you know, Cindy handles these four things and Joe handles these when really it should be a shared responsibility with the supervisor delegating very large pieces of the lab operation to the more senior people below them. Yeah, so really setting up 
an, a work environment with experiential learning for people who are not yet in those leadership positions. Kelly, Marty, any other thoughts? No, I think John John hit it on the head, and it's almost like he was talking to my chair because one of my goals from a year ago was to delegate more and mentor more. I may or may not be somewhat of a control freak and <laughs> in, in want to manage everything. And what I've really tried to do just in the last year is, is to mentor and develop. I have a director of anatomic pathology. I have a director of clinical pathology and to let them take on more duties and to let them go to meetings in my place, allow them to flourish in their career. It's not always easy to give, give away those things, but it's, it's been really refreshing the last year. And I agree with both Marty and John. And I think that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to admit that you're not going to be here forever. It's a reality. And if you don't, if you don't plan for that, you're shortchanging your institution and you're shortchanging your profession and your department and, and the people that you call your work family. And you have to deliberately seek out those leaders and seek out those people that are, you know, just rising to the top and work with them. They might not even realize that they have the potential. You have to find it in them and find the right attitude, you know, of those people that I mentioned before that will do anything and everything that needs to be done and help them kind of guide them to point them to the associations or to point them to the training or the extra education that they can get that will help them get on the right path so they can become your successor or they can grow and develop into that great person that they want to be and move into that new role or whatever. But it's it's not something that they're going to figure out on their own necessarily. You have to be the bigger person in the room and say, tell me what it is that you want to do. Do you see yourself doing this? And they may not have even considered it. And just pushing them a little bit and helping them see their fullest potential, I think, is is our jobs. It's what we're here to do. I think it's also our job to uh, sort of to add to what Kelly was suggesting. I think it's our job to let some of our finest people move on. And, you know, you really want to be selfish and hold on to your top performers, but more often than not, your top performers might be peaking in their performance at a time when you do not have the next level promotion for them. And I think it's okay to work with them and try to move their career on and find satisfaction in seeing them go on to be a leader at another institution and doing wonderful things and having a collegial relationship with them instead of hoarding them and holding on to them and stopping their career. And that's, that's really hard to do. But once you do it one or two or three times, it's also very gratifying to do it. I love bumping into people, you know, at the ASCP meetings that were, you know, once a pathology technician or, or even once our fellow and you peek down and they're a chair now, you know, and that, that's, that's really a, a great thing. And you, you have to help these people and be honest with, I might lose you and help them move on in the most productive way that's best for them. Yeah, and I take out the scary part of, you know, 
well, they might not be satisfied with their current role and they may want to look elsewhere. And so I always try to, anytime that I directly supervise anybody, I always try to urge them and encourage them to come and let me know if you see something that you want to be apply for or someone reaches out to you and wants to interview you. I always say you always learn something new about yourself every single time you interview. So go do it. Go do it. You might help. You might help us. You might find something that they're doing better that we could implement here. And so please, I welcome that. And, And they just learn something new about themselves every time they do it. And I also, along the lines that I was thinking when John was talking, that it is so helpful, I think, to let someone know that it's okay to move on and to move on to a different area. And like John said as well, there might not be something that is in their, you know, sites or whatever where you are, but you, but them communicating with you and and giving you that feedback that they're just not fully satisfied, you might be able to help them because of the networking and because of the opportunities that you can see that they might not see for themselves. I think you guys are making excellent points. And I think you're actually talking about, I don't want to say a shift in workplace culture, but you have to actively, you have to actively work toward that culture, right? Where it's, it's okay. And that, you know, we're delegating things. I'm not threatened, you know, or whatever by me being a supervisor and my giving you this work or whatever, like delegating this to you, that doesn't threaten me in any way. I'm trying to make you the best tech and, and the best leader you can be. And this is how we do it. And eventually you might have to move on, but that's okay. I think that all really points to like a really healthy work environment. And that needs to be cultivated, I think, industry-wide. It's hard. It's really, really hard to let some of these wonderful people go. Sometimes in the case of this podcast, the industry never recovers when someone, you know, leaves, say, the pathology field and and moves on to a different subspecialty. (laughs) To the listeners, I'm teasing my colleague, (laughs) who's left us. Pathology still in my heart. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about uh, both making yourself invaluable, but then also empowering those as part of your team. How can you reconcile those two? I really think you need to give people full independent responsibilities that they manage on their own with very little of your input other than at the end of the project guidance and let them manage it from the start is I mentioned it before, but effective mentoring and making sure people have something that is completely their own accomplishment on behalf of the institution is critically important. I also think it's incredibly important to get people to speak in public and learn how to communicate at all levels speaking to all levels of people, whether it's the most senior medical staff or the most junior technicians and put them up in front of a room and try it's You know, you're basically teaching them how to sell and how to sell their opinion and how to sell their point of view. And whether it's a budget or whether it's a new piece of equipment or whether it's training someone on how to use it or a new hospital initiative on diversity, how you sell it is all really the special uh, technique in trying to get people to adopt it. And people can only do that by crafting emails themselves and collecting the responses themselves and standing in front of the room or hosting a meeting themselves. 
I think it's a, it's a critical key for developing some of these young leaders. And, and I'll just follow up saying, I think we all want to be invaluable, but I understand that every single one of us is replaceable and will be replaced at some point. I think that's the most important thing about mentorship in creating the, the new leaders that will follow us. And most of us work for institutions that have been around for over 100 years. And uh, what we want to do is be able to create meaningful careers where people feel valuable or invaluable in those careers. And, and what can we do to do that? And I think just like Marty and John both alluded to, creating a situation where whomever you're talking to or, or mentoring or developing, giving them your insight that you've made mistakes too. And it's okay. It's okay to fumble and it's okay to be human and to, you know, give them that insight that you have fallen down some stairs before, but you got back up and you were able to recover and how you did that, because that's going to happen. It's going to happen. It happens to all of us, but it's okay. And we learn from it and we grow from it. And that's, that's the good part of the bad things that happen to us, right? And some physician that comes in and screams at you and not that pathologists ever do that, but let's just say that that happens, you know, how do you recover from that? And, and, or if you mess up a number on a budget or a spreadsheet or something, and, and how do you recover from that? And, and just learning from your mistakes and, and sharing those insights with those people. And I think also providing them like a safety net that they have, like John was saying, you know, pushing them in front of people, but giving them like a safety net that you're there, you're on the front row and you can bail them out if they need to be bailed out. And they just need to give you a sign that they're struggling a little bit. And here's how you can, you know, help them. And I think giving people that you're mentoring a safety net has been my special purpose because I really feel like that it's so scary to step out of yourself and to step out of your comfort zone. And if you have someone there that's got your back, then you're going to be a little bit more willing to step out and to take those risks. Yeah, I remember it was a few weeks ago where I think it was HBO Max, where an intern accidentally sent out a test email to hundreds of thousands of their members and of course, you know, the whole, I think they tweeted about it and the whole tweet in itself was funny because they just were like, yes, it really was the intern. And, but then the beautiful thing that happened is when you, you can still look it up, but the hashtag was their intern. All these people started sharing their own mistakes of things that they had done wrong. And I mean, I'm literally getting goosebumps as I'm talking about it now, because all these stories, it was so beautiful. It felt like the whole community Everybody came together to support this one person, but then also then to support one another through all these failures, because we have all failed on the job. And honestly, if we haven't failed, we're actually doing something wrong because we're supposed to fail. Exactly like you said, that's where so much of the learning happens. And it was such, such a beautiful way to see everybody coming together to support one another through our failures. I'm with Loti. That was such an empowering tweet thread, just seeing every everybody just like come together. It's like, yep, yeah, been there, kid. Let me tell you about what I did. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit. I know that you guys both have, or all, all you have some background in this. So I want to kind of touch on how personnel management differs in academic settings versus clinical settings. Because I've only wor ever worked in like strictly clinical laboratories. 
How, how much time do you have? <laughs> we have we have 152 minutes left to this podcast. <laughs> yes, let's, 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 let's do a top top view. Top view. I can start in in my perspective, it's private versus public. So because um, I've only been in academics and so I'm kind of an ap- academic anomaly, but I have worked in a clinical lab versus an anatomic lab versus the office. And then so I know that there is a variety of different settings that you can be in. But I think that fundamentally, no matter what department that you're in or what area you're in, you know, it's all about the relationships. And um, if it's, you know, the relationship with that, your immediate supervisor or the employees that you supervise, that's the most important thing. It could be at a fast food place all the way to a place like Boston Children's or University of Michigan, which is where my colleagues hail from. You know, it could be a highfalutin kind of place or it could be just any old lab that as long as you have those relationships, that's the most important thing that I think I can contribute to the conversation. John and Marty? Yeah, I'll chime in. Um, We benchmark against other academic uh, universities and we benchmark against local community hospitals. And what we find is is very different things and our employees are aware of that. So the benefit packages that are generally given by um, university hospitals are greater than what's given by um, community hospitals. So we have a better benefit package than others, but our salaries might not be as well as what they offer. And we've seen, we've seen staff and faculty leave for community practices that provide a higher salary, but maybe not the same benefit package. And I think Kelly was really touching on the fact that, you know, what can we do to make people feel valuable and valued at their job? But there, there is a difference in community hospitals versus academic institutions. Yeah, I, I, and maybe I can comment on once these folks get into the department, I do think personnel management in an academic institution is especially challenging. And obviously, because there's conflicting hierarchies. You know, if you take the average laboratory supervisor, as most academic universities are structured, they may report to a laboratory manager who may report to an administrator, who may report to an executive director, and then to a vice president. But parallel to that, there is the medical director of all of those laboratories. And when you take, for example, a pathology laboratory manager, or in my case, an an anatomic pathology laboratory manager, he or she may have several medical directors to report to, one in the histology laboratory, one in the cytology laboratory, one in the autopsy suite, or one in the uh, molecular suite. So that's four different levels of hierarchy that that lab manager has to report to somewhere along with you. If those folks aren't aligned or have different communication styles or different management styles, that can very, very quickly sour anyone in a leadership role or even at the technical role. It's very, very hard to line up all of these directors into one meeting pattern and one set of agenda and one dashboard of opportunities and goals. 
but you really have to work hard to try to do that because it's very, very stressful. These employees don't know sometimes who to please first. Sometimes it goes by rank. Sometimes it goes by who's the better teacher. Sometimes it goes by who's the most aggressive person requesting. And once they get in the door, you you really have to line up all these layers of hierarchy to one set of meetings, one set of goals, and one set of standards and, and audit it frequently so you don't stress people terribly. So then how can we connect to others in economic pathology administration communities? And then how important is networking to the overall personnel management puzzle? So I think internal to your organization, whatever that might be, and external, networking is critical, not only for you as an individual, but also for you as a player in that department, in that organization, in that lab, because opening your eyes to what's going on outside of your institution is key to, so you see that there's another way to do things that there might be a better way, or maybe someone is doing it and you're validated because you've already been there, done that before. And you can maybe even impart some um, wisdom to that person. Depending on, you know, I think what your situation is, I think internal networking is in that, like I was talking about with those relationships, because you don't want to work in just a, a silo and work by yourself and I mean, you want to be able to say good morning to someone and have them say good morning back, right? And then moving on beyond just the internal relationships and networking, I think the external networking has really helped me. That was one reason why it was hard for me to leave pathology after 25 years because of the people that are on this podcast with me. Um, And thank goodness I still have a relationship with them. But that external networking is especially to anyone who aspires to be a a lab leader these days is going to really give you wings and help you soar as high as you can go because they will help you either direct you to a place that you might not need to go or direct you to a, a, you know, in the right direction. So you can not waste a lot of time and reinvent wheels, for example. I think one of the things I'm I'm nervous about that the pandemic I hope didn't permanently sour was the attendance of national meetings and participation at you know for example the ASCP the the remote meetings are wonderful and they sure have been a, a lifeline of communication during some some very stagnant times budgets are different nowadays margins are smaller it's harder and harder to send people to these national forums i couldn't agree with kelly more that the networking at even these regional meetings number one to to sit and listen to you know experts like kelly and marty you know lecture and take notes and and steal their ideas on how they've solved problems But getting those folks out in the hallway and sharing a problem that maybe you're apprehensive to share publicly has just been a career lifesaver for me and many of us. And I I hope the regional arms of the national societies become a little bit more active to allow, you know, state by state attendance at some of these meetings. 
When you have the opportunity, the ASCP is in Boston coming up in the fall. And, you know, we're, we're going to take every advantage to send people to that. I think we really need to make sure that that's an active part of our budget because it, it's a learning experience that is just invaluable. And, and I think it's really important with subspecialties like, like pathology. If you work at an institution and your, your job is in family medicine or internal medicine or pediatrics, you can talk about ENM codes with your colleagues within the institution. No one else knows what 8305s, 8307s, 8309s are, other than your pathology colleagues that are not in your institution. Yeah, and I think that when we are able, and hopefully I think um, I, I hold the same you know, wish that John mentioned, that the pandemic didn't kill our in-person meeting opportunities. It's so interesting to me to have an organization where you're sitting right next to a physician, you're sitting right next to a pathologist at a meeting, and they're, they're contributing to a management topic, and you're getting to hear their insight and their perspective. And to me, that type of networking has also been invaluable. That kind of leads me into my next question. Kelly, both you and John kind of talked about you know, pulling people aside at a meeting or whatever and, hey, I've got this problem that I'm not really going to talk about publicly, but let me get your take on it. Since we've got, you know, a public forum here, let's just get into it. Can you guys each describe maybe a tough personnel uh, challenge that you guys have dealt with, worked through, and, and how did you go about doing that? So when I first took over the clinical lab, I'm going to say this is about 10 years ago, I was known kind of as the hatchet girl because every time somebody got brought into my office, they were getting their walk-in papers. And I really had to work hard to turn that around. And Like, it, oh no, I've got a meeting with Kelly, I'm fired. <laughs> yes. I didn't realize that that's what the thought was until somebody shared that with me. And I was like, oh, and knowing me, that was a blow to my self-esteem because I well, think, well, and your self-image too, right? Yeah. You didn't realize that you had people looked at you that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think that I'm a nice person and, and here I am a hatchet girl. And so I, I really tried hard to turn that around. And, um, but it was very difficult with this one particular person because she literally told people in the lab that it didn't matter what we did to her, that she could not be fired because she was so important and, and she could come in anytime she wanted. And she was, um, she was just very indignant and she did not have the best attitude. And that is a really hard problem when you're over that area and you need to address that. First of all, if you don't address it, you're going to be seen as someone who lets people get away with that. And that's not good. So you've got to address it. And if you don't address it, you're promoting what you permit or whatever the little saying is. So I had to call her in. And, you know, that's when I found out I was called the hatchet girl. I let her know that that was unacceptable and that that wasn't going to continue and, you know, do everything that HR said I needed to do. And then she showed up later with a weapon and she was caught by security, thank goodness. But I mean, you just that that's probably the best example of a worst scenario that I've ever had with HR um, an HR problem or anything. And um, I mean, thankfully, it was taken care of. But 
there's some real volatile people out there and you have to be very careful and follow the rules and make sure that you are, you know, protecting yourself and protecting your institution, of course, and all those things. But but that's probably the scariest example I have to share with you all today. I hired a private investigator to follow a resident for probably three days because he was bringing a gun into work and threatening people. The most important thing to think about is, is safety for employees. It happens rarely, but it does happen. Over 30 years, we've seen incidences where, where people have threatened people at work and created an unsafe environment. And I think our roles as leaders is to make sure we provide a safe environment for people. So I've dealt with police more than I thought I would ever have to do. I've done things that uh, never thought would come with pathology administration, but it does happen. We do have to make sure that our employees are safe, but also kind of look out for the mental health of, of all of our employees. And to go along with my friends who've commented, I think all of this starts by having the courage to address bad behavior at the earliest sign of bad behavior. It's the worst part, I think, of all of our jobs. It's what we dread the most. No one is really good at it. Um, it's always awkward. It's always uncomfortable. I think there's some perception that some people may be better at it than others. And I, I, I don't know anyone out there that has any other feeling other than they hate it. And a day when you have to go in and confront bad behavior is the worst day of the week or the month of the year. But you must confront bad behavior early. Without a doubt, the biggest regrets in my career were not doing that at the time I did and allowing others to not do it as well and allowing this bad behavior to escalate to a point where, like, you know, and like my colleagues are saying, somebody feels somehow justified in bringing a weapon to work. You know, these are issues that should have maybe could have been nipped in the bud long before it got to this point, but somebody let that behavior continue. And you know, I mentioned an academic environment. Sometimes you have to go against the advice and opinions of your colleagues who don't want to challenge this behavior and think the behavior is okay and just do it anyway. It takes some time to get that confidence. It certainly takes a lot of gray hairs to be able to say, no, I'm going to confront this now. But uh, that is by far my, my biggest regret and always will be. Yes, I, I agree with John and, and Marty both. I think that any time that a supervisor, a new supervisor, for example, you know, has to be faced with that situation and and where they have to um, have a hard conversation with somebody, I always try to urge them or encourage them by telling them, you know, you did not do this. They did this to themselves. And you are just sharing with them um, how they can correct it and make the situation better. And so I, I think that sometimes when you, you know, change the table and you make the perspective, you know, change their perspective a little bit, it helps. Yeah, holding people accountable is tough. Absolutely. Giving advice to the next generation, to the people who are climbing the ranks behind us, would that be your advice to hold people accountable? Or is there an additional uh, piece of information or advice that you would give people? I would say be honest, be vulnerable, be direct, 
and be true to yourself and try really hard to not take the credit, give credit away. That's what I would say to somebody who was looking to become the top dog in pathology administration. John, Marty, any other closing thoughts? I I would just follow up with what Kelly was saying is talk to people, have regular meetings, tell them what's going on, encourage them to grow in their career and communicate and yeah, and, and share your own shortcomings. And, and I couldn't agree more about sharing credit or giving credit elsewhere. No one does anything alone. We're all part of a team. Obviously, those are tremendous points. Being unselfish and, and making a decision, you know, Kelly hit the nail right on the head. We're, we're not here for very long, and we're certainly not at our jobs for very long. And what a wonderful tribute to who you are is to try to fill your seat with someone better than you, not as good as you, better than you, and and leave a better legacy moving forward and and fill your seat with somebody that can do your job better and faster and more efficient instead of they're not going to make it without me attitude. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of humility to get to that point, but make a decision that you're going to teach people and and you're going to leave a, a better legacy behind you at your job and people are going to be empowered and they will do the same because they learned it from you. Whereas if you don't, the next generation is not either. You know, selfishness is also a quality that can be passed on. And uh, where selflessness is what you really want to do. I just came up with that on my own, by the way. That's pretty special. Wow. You need needle point that. Really something else. That was that was great, you guys. You just like walked me right into the end. Uh, I want to thank you guys so much for participating. Um, this was such a great conversation. You know, I learned something. I'm dead certain that our listeners have learned something. And uh, thanks again for uh, being guests. It's our been pleasure. Great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And then finally, don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org.